Nine o'clock in the city of angels. Your brother here to testify. Cause the weekend's through and money's starting, baby. We're gonna walk on. Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had a successful opening weekend with $40 million at the North American box office. And this week, I had the chance to sit down for a conversation with two of the director's longtime collaborators. Production sound mixer Mark Ulano met Tarantino roughly 25 years ago and has worked on all Tarantino-directed movies since 1997's Jackie Brown. He's also an Oscar winner for Titanic and earned a second nomination for Inglorious Bastards. Supervising sound editor Wiley Stateman, similarly, has a long-time working relationship with the director, which started with Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2. He's an eight-time Oscar nominee for films including Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. They join me today at the Hollywood Reporter's office to discuss their work on Tarantino's ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. You both have worked with Quentin for a long time. Would each of you tell me how you met and why does this collaborative process work so well? Mark, would you like to start? Sure. 25 years. (laughs) Well, we met on a film 25 years ago in Acuna, Mexico, a little somewhat dangerous border town uh, to Del Rio, Texas, on a film called Desperado, directed by Robert Rodriguez. And Quentin came down to act in the film. He, he performed in a cameo part in a bar sequence. And so he was down there for three days, and that's where we first met. It was around the time of release of Pulp Fiction, which had not released yet. And while we were continuing on that production, Quinton sent Robert a print of Pulp Fiction prior to release, and Robert rented a theater in Del Rio, a little public theater, and after rap one day, he took the crew to watch Quinton's new film. Blew our minds. That was like, we had no you know, way to be anticipating you know, the, the unveiling of Pulp Fiction, and so the next thing that happened was a film called Dust Till Dawn, which Quinton wrote and produced and acted in, and Robert directed as well, and that's where Quinton and I actually really met and connected and bonded and there's a bit in a documentary called Full Tilt Boogie where he's interviewed, I'm interviewed and it sort of reveals the beginning of that stuff. And then Jackie Brown is where we began working together with him as a director and it was a joyous, sunny experience. I had just come off the the, the boat picture of Titanic which was seven months at night and you know in, in darkness and this was a very lovely wonderful beginning of what's been turned out over years to become a really great collaboration. So that's our beginning time. And we have an affinity, and it comes from filmmaking. The highest praise any of us could have is that you're a filmmaker. Whatever instrument you're playing in the orchestra, you're still a filmmaker in the collective. And and Quentin surrounds himself with people of that stripe. They're artists. They're artists in their own way. And in my generation, and I guess maybe Wiley's, I don't know, we're kind of the first generation of fine arts majors to come into the crafts. Before us, it was very father to son, closed shop. You couldn't get in. And But in the early 70s, middle 70s, which is my time, is you know this transition of people who just are absolutely nuts for movies. It's our religion. And we would and did anything possible to be able to live, learn, and, and be 
involved with movie making. And Quentin's kind of the same. He, he grew his own. He didn't come from a traditional path. And so there's always this student-like thing, and that's our connection, is that we're passionate about making movies and all the history of movies and all that they bring to the possibility of new movies, you know, because of the underpinning that they, they build under that. And we have a connection in that level. Okay. And Wiley, you've worked with Quentin on every film since the Kill Bill. Yeah, I started with Quentin. Uh, We met early in the schedule on Kill Bill. That was his uh, fourth film. So I uh, unfortunately sat out the first three. But um, having had the opportunity through Shannon McIntosh and Sally Mankey to uh, meet up with Quentin on Kill Bill and to kind of discuss the unique challenges of that particular project, it was just sort of an opportunity to sort of get inside, as, as Mark said, the mind of a filmmaker as a colleague and as an artist and an artisan. And so Kill Bill represented the first time we sort of collaborated. And I think that the detail of that film in terms of sound stands on its own. It's a really uh, a really interesting project. And from there, I just fell in love with the idea of, of making films in collaboration with Quentin and, and Quentin's team. Uh, Shannon McIntosh played a really significant role in introducing me as well to Quentin. So. She's another component. That's she was on uh, Dust Till Dawn. That's where we yeah. met, and and so we go back a long ways. And I, we met in China. I don't know if you remember that. You yeah. were there bringing. You brought your son. I think he was fourteen Absolutely. to Beijing, and that's where we met, and that's where you guys, I think, you know, connected. It was yeah. And that's also part of the wonder of working with Quentin is that you know it's better than the Navy. You get to see the world through the eyes of art and. Uh, and working with a film crew, um, the likes of what he uh, manages to assemble, whether it's the talent behind the camera with Bob Richardson or uh, the Mark costumes. Is nodding. Yeah, Mark is I, nodding. I'm full-heartedly, yes, absolutely. Yeah, his, his productions are filled with interesting characters and true um, collaborative artists. So sound is a collaborative process. And Mark, maybe you could start. Would you just briefly explain the role of a production sound mixer, which was your role on the film. Sure. In, in a, it's kind of a stretch as an analogy, but on the set, it's somewhat equivalent to the director of photography in that we're the front end of the food chain. We're, we're really charged with creatively capturing and performances, but done through the eyes of the director. So our charge is to really find the director's intent and then use our tools to interpret that intent in ways that support the characters that the actors are creating. So that later when it gets handed to our the next phase, Wiley and Mike Minkler are the editor and the Re-recording, re-recording mixer. There's a coherence in that, and that we also travel with the character's arc, story arc, you know. So the, it's mainly getting the director's intent and then finding our tools to support that and to do that openly in each project, not come with an ideology preset in our mind about a single approach, but what works for this, what's right here. So that's, that's a production mixer's chance. In the music business, we would be the equivalent of a creative recording producer because we deal closely and intimately with the performing artists every day right. um, in a collaboration. It's much more invisible on a film set because you've got 15 other departments doing the same thing in their realm, but it's, it's that thing of you know collaborating with artists. you know. And Wiley, similarly, for the uninitiated, would you explain the role of the supervising sound editor? Okay. The supervising sound editor really serves to transition the film from production to post-production. So often with the projects that I'm attracted to, I work with uh, writer, director, producer, filmmakers. And so I love the big picture view of, of the process. 
But the first real responsibility that I have is to take that handoff from Mark and the production team and bring it to the cutting room. And the cutting room is uh, a place um, I would equate Quentin's cutting rooms to a California chop shop. So it's a place where we bring in a piece of uh, material, we flatten it out, we fold it, we bend it, we fill it, and we form it into something that is part of his vision. So uh, the production material comes into us. It's uh, basically a piece of dialogue attached to every shot that was captured during production. And the role of the Superbank sound editor is to work with the editor and the director and take that material and, and, and really transform it into something. In terms of, of Quentin's process and in terms of sound, often we take a role in the cutting room with Fred Raskin and his team. And uh, our job is to rapidly prototype the soundtrack so that the cutting patterns and the assembly of the film can really be furthered more quickly with more uh, comprehensive detail. And a very interesting part of working with Quentin is that he makes musical choices and uh, those are done early in his process, often in the writing phase. He made choices in this case uh, with radio, uh, using KHJ radio. And so a lot of that stuff was fixed in his mind and so we got to model against it. So as the supervising sound editor, our role one is to take a handoff from production, two is to rapidly prototype the soundtrack of the film so that the cutting process can proceed in an orderly and uh, highly creative sort of way. And then it's to transition that material to the third leg of the chair, which is the re-recording mixer. And we present along with the film editor the soundtrack to be sort of fixed and finalized and set for the audience. Now, very rare for this film, there was no credited composer. And uh, as you were saying earlier, Quentin used his choice of music and sound design. Yes. Would you elaborate on that? This film is driven by songs. It's driven by um, the idea that in the late 1960s, radio played a very significant role in the lives of people who were experiencing the tumultuous change of, of that era. And so Quentin had a very fixed idea about the songs he wanted to use, but a very fluid idea about how we were going to connect all that stuff and what we were going to do in the absence of a song. So sound design plays a very significant role in taking scene transitions or uh, tension moments and flushing them out with an audio component and companion to those sort of things. It plays a very significant role, and as we see today, the musical composition isn't what it used to be. A lot of composers are working with organic elements and instruments that couldn't have been imagined uh, with wood and strings or, or reeds and bows. And so the sound design of a film, it's tasked with the idea of connecting the emotional elements and the story elements of the film with organic components. Now full of jitterbugs from Pico Rivera, baby, I'm gonna cut one loose for him. Hey, heck doll, your mama looking for you. I want to express how deeply impacted and affected I am in my approach to what I do by how Wiley approaches what he does. He's orchestral in his approach. He is truly a composer in an almost traditional sense in terms of when the soundtrack comes through Wiley's shop, there's 
there's so many elements of, of musical composition in the execution of that, that it's almost hard, even impossible for me to delineate between what we know as traditional music, you know, scoring and composition and what, what he's, I think that, I, I hope I'm not, but that's my experience of what you bring to the projects that we've collaborated on. And it's really the future. It's really how movies need to be seen in this holistic way. And Wiley is the pioneer of that. I'm not sure there enough people are recognizing that, but it's, it's really a true experience that I've had over the 15 years that we've, or more, that we've worked together. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> so, Wiley, tell us about capturing 1969. 1969 was uh, a year of great change. So, for me, the basis of the script that Quentin presented us with was really the convergence of the John Wayne generation and True Grit and the elements that made Easy Rider possible. Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda was the quintessential 1969 buddy film uh, and maybe sort of like an inspiration for for where Quentin wanted uh, Rick Dalton and Cliff characters to come from. The idea of 1969 is really the idea of great social change, but also of a generation that was very traditional and very singular, like uh, the John Wayne sort of personality type, and then the sort of free spirits of Fonda and Hopper. So I think Quentin's belief was that we could make a film and make it interesting and showcase these relationships in this period as a love affair for not only filmmaking, uh, but for Hollywood in the late 1960s. And it was a lovely idea and something that I think he executed with great depth and uh, talent. And how did you execute that in the sound work? Uh, Well, in terms of sound, every environment had a sort of a a background. Every automobile had a certain, you know, uh, sort of V8, mid-1960s feel to it. I think Mark brought us there and the KHA radio and some of the music from Quentin's music collection, uh, which is all analog and, and all coming straight off of vinyl, allowed us to really have a backbone that was authentic. And then from there, we could embellish it with design elements. We could use his beautiful dialogue to put us in 1969. The Vagabond, attention now, the Vagabond class of 1958 of University High will hold a reunion June 22nd. Oh, but you'll get to look at everybody's uh, hair thinning and see if uh, if Jane really was a victim of baby fat. We'll find out for sure now. For information and reservations, you phone 478-2370. Let's talk about the dialogue. Um, Quinn doesn't do ADR. He doesn't do that. Uh, ADR is automatic dialogue replacement is what the uh, uh, the ADR means, and it basically is known as looping or be- replacing dialogue that was recorded on the set for the reasons of either mainly technical problems or performance issues sometimes. It's performance channeling his idea of what these characters should be connecting to the audience with, who they are. He has an obligation, passionate uh, sense of responsibility about entertaining. And so that kind of keeps us away from being too hypothetical in terms of aesthetics, you know. A good idea needs to be something an audience gets under their skin, under the radar, connects, you know. We have to get involved with these characters. Rooting interest is, is essential. And so how we experience the characters is really what drives the bus with him. And, and so he thinks and feels strongly that that means what they did when they did it is what he believes is true for the movie, and that's going to be in the movie, goddammit. 
And so that's front and foremost when yeah, you're doing your it's, job. It's actually not rocket science. It's a passionate conviction about a certain approach. And he just has the discipline and the authority to apply that approach. Doesn't mean that he doesn't make it constantly creatively challenging because he does. You know, we'll, we will be doing open windows in a V8 vehicle from 19, you know, uh, a 68 at 70 miles an hour on an open freeway, and we're going to approach that that way. How did you address that? It's proportion. It's about proportion. You know, balance between the environment. You know, in a way. It's a gift to have such a broad palette of period vehicles in this. In, you know, we had 50 or 60 vehicles virtually every day just for background crosses, buses, good humor trucks. I mean, it's just every, everything you can imagine from that time. They create a kind of environment. And, and so for me, the threshold for supporting Quentin's intent is to make sure that whatever we do doesn't break connection with the idea of the characters and the character arc. So... Can we hear them? That's, that's sort of a key piece. But can we hear them in a context of the environment they're in? And so when that gets broken somehow, when we're, you know, because nothing's, nothing's absolutely precise or perfect until you get there on the day and you're actually in the individual shot. Um, so that's, a, that's an ongoing process, shot by shot by shot. Every shot's handmade. Yeah. by a group of artisans who want the audience to believe this is a whole story over a period of time, but in a mosaic way. We make this piece, we make this piece. And so when there's a potential conflict of elements, it's not territory, it's about priorities. So if I come to Quentin and I say, Quentin, I think we're breaking connection with our characters in this particular piece, he'll stop and be not you know, worried or defensive or very comfortable with his own skin. He says, okay, we'll adjust. You know, so that his character still survives that shot somehow. Or alter something, a timing, you know, minimal because, you know, you don't want to intrude on the blocking that's been built between the actor and the director. They create where the camera's going to go because of the physical blocking. There's a timing thing that's happened, and he's totally focused on that. When, when we get there on the day, it's amazing. It's not premeditated or preordained, but it's planned, and then... The things that are new that happen on the day are discovery. So he doesn't just do one thing in a sort of, you know, lockstep way. He has that set. He's ready. But then he's also completely open to discovery on the day and the set. If you have an idea on the set and you bring it to Quentin and he uses the idea, you get $5. <laughs> but that's a very high threshold. <laughs> he's very particular about that $5. But it's kind of a message to his repertoire company, both in front and behind the camera, I'm here, this is a clearly established set of ideas, but I'm welcoming your support, your input as artists and as part of the creativity. And so that's the way I can do that. And I can be in a proportionate level. If we don't get what's happening with the character, we don't get at the base level the information they're transmitting through his dialogue, then we have to adjust to get that to happen. And he's very careful about it. Yeah. Quentin believes, and it's on Mark's watch, that actor authenticity begins on the set and that character development is something that he works very closely to capture on the set. And that's the material he wants in the film. And so the, the backbone of his films are always the production dialogue track. And the pacing comes from that. It's not added later as a garnish in post-production. It's, uh, it's captured on the day. He's I, I would lightning put, in a bottle. <laughs> lightning in a bottle. I would put it 50-50. You know, uh, he's not only a director that writes. He's a writer that directs. Yes. And both are in collaboration, not in combat with each other. He spends a year, longhand, writing this thing and finessing what's going to be in the movie in terms of the dialogue. And, and that's his gift. 
yeah. and a gift to all of us. And so he knows that, and, and we are supportive of that. Let's talk about a few scenes. Um, Spawn Ranch. Wiley, would you like to start? Yeah, Spawn Ranch is a is a wonderful example of Quentin deciding that there isn't an appropriate song that could speak to the evil of this place and these characters that are the the, the Manson family which inhabited this place. The wonder of Spawn Ranch is really this long drive up, this walk to uh, George Spawn's dwelling, and the interaction that he has along the way with the Manson family characters. So, very early on, Quentin said. I don't want to do this with music. I, I don't feel there's a piece of music that would do more uh, harm than good. So can we do this with sound design? Can we make this a creepy, inhospitable place? And so what we tried to do is to just sort of develop organic uh, things. We used material um, that was recorded out in the desert of various squeaky bits of metal and uh, all kinds of wind sounds. And there were uh, three sound effects designers that uh, had a shot and a hand in that. Harry Cohen, who does really beautiful work with layered organic materials. Sylvain Lussier, who uh, added on top of that some textures that he creates with a device called the Kima Pecorina. You know, those things were sort of instrumental in sort of determining some of the picture cuts and how we go behind something or how we just spend time looking at a long shot down the dusty drive. Um, but the Spawn Ranch is a very interesting example of where sound textures and, and organic sounds can become like music and score the emotion of the scene. I was very curious when we were shooting that material how would we, because it's so essential to the film, this building malevolence, it's creeping in, it's coming little by little by little, you know, we do a touch and we back off, we do a little more, then we back off. And the answer to my curiosity at the time was what, what Wiley just described, is there is just all this almost subconscious material built around that. It's very subtle, but it's really, really, you know, uh, the tapestry is amazing. If you look at that, it sets up our anxiety about the whole Manson issue in the film, because that's that's one of the multiple threads, but it's a key thread. You know, where are we going to this horrible moment that, you know, history knows, but so much of that is through what's, what he did. I, I do want to mention, as he mentioned, uh, some of the collaborators, you asked about how we did that sound work in terms of the vehicles. That's also key to my team of people. My boom operators, Tom Hardig and Petrushka Mirzwar, were essential in collaborating with quick but effective placements that made sense in those vehicles. That was not a small bit of, of you know, fluff. That was a very key part of that. The Lancer set. We started to talk about this earlier um, when Leonardo DiCaprio's character really beats himself up in the trailer and then he comes out and does that walk. Would you tell us your approach to that sequence? Yeah. Uh, so the Lancer set is a very important part of the early and internal part of the film. And um, Mark and I probably would share a good laugh having worked in a trailer in Kill Bill Volume 2 uh, where there was this impossible sword fight. We now had really the breakdown of Leonardo in a trailer that was really a series of, of, of cuts and things, and, and but it still takes place in a very confined space. And in terms of sound, working in a confined space is always a real challenge. But after the breakdown, Rick Dalton, uh, Leonardo's character, does a walk out to the set. He's regained his confidence 
experience. And uh, now he's going to apply his craft as an actor that he so wonderfully knows is inside of him. And it's those kinds of things. It's a walk where the fence posts go by and they make a noise and the horse in the distance is in the perfect rhythm with the emotional flow of his entering the scene. I mean, one of the most beautiful things in Quentin Tarantino's films, uh, beyond what he finds beautiful about the human body or, or, or feet or whatnot, is the fact that he allows us to embellish on his characters walking out to their moments. You know, So there's quite a few really delightful moments in this film where there's not a lot of dialogue, where there's a chance to introduce ambient sounds and to design things around uh, Fred Raskin's cutting patterns and Quentin's sensibility with how even stationary objects can make noise or a cut can make a noise or a, a standoff with two characters uh, getting ready to have a shootout can have these heightened moments of wind and, and homages to uh, westerns of that era. The Lancer set was full of those sort of things. So we have one scene, and I'll flip it over and just try and give you a sense of how we work opposite of intent sometimes. So we're doing a scene in a bar, and it's going to culminate with Rick Dalton forgetting his lines. But as the scene progresses, there's more and more sound design. There's more and more noise. On a typical production set, you would have somebody say, you know, we're rolling, quiet, and everybody shuts up, and the place goes completely silent. So Mark can record the dialogue. In this particular case, we use that set to become richer and richer and richer. And when Leonardo forgets his line, we go absolutely silent, so silent that there's nothing in the in the center of the frame, uh, sound-wise. And you hear off stage the script supervisor throwing in the line, which is a devastating thing for an actor. And it should occur in silence, but it's exactly opposite. As soon as somebody says cut or somebody forgets the line, usually the entire crew is resetting for the next shot. And in our film. And, in, and for the benefit of our story, we use silence opposite of what would be typical reality. So. And, and again, when he forgets his line the second time, it's dynamics. It's like music dynamics. Again, I, I will say Wiley's work is so orchestral because, you know, the loud needs the quiet to exist, to make its point. And this is all about dynamics. It's all musical, you know, in, you know underlying to me. And, and so I, I love that you brought that up, by the way, because that's one of my favorite things in the movie is the whole journey of Leo, the, you know, his character is this person who is emotionally descending into this deeply you know depressed sense of loss of self loss of identity and the fact ultimately for me about this film that's most moving is how it's filled with acceptance and gratitude he finally accepts himself and he has this relationship with with brad which is you know Brad is somebody who's journeyed to the edge more than one time throughout his life, and he's in a state of gratitude that he's survived all that and is still supportive and caring for people around him. As trained a killer as he might be as a character, there's a heart of gold inside that killer, and, and he doesn't hesitate to apply it when he, his own internal dead reckoning takes him there. It's just amazing for me that that emerges in this film. What do you say? You want to be the prettiest, sunniest blonde in town? Well, of course you do. Well, you listen to this now. Wiley, what's another one of your favorite scenes? I would have to say that the, the lead-up to Cielo Drive is really quite interesting sound-wise. And uh, the challenge there was to bring 
certain members of the of the Manson family to the point where we were going to have the third act climax. What we had was uh, a car approaching, and we have the idea that this night is all of a sudden going to go from uh, the film that we were making to the finish that we were going to provide. And in terms of sound, we had just had this very interesting almost choreographed sort of cutting pattern of the walk-up. As I said before, you know, Quentin affords us this opportunity to really develop the in and out of the scene. So the in of that scene is really, I think, in terms of sound, something quite interesting. We have Rick blending a margarita to kind of put the topper on his night. We have, uh, you know, people arriving on scene. We have a great piece of music that's playing along. And... I think the way we handled that and the, the, the subsequent uh, dialogue scene between Rick and, and the, the family uh, really adds and yet another level to the storytelling that Quentin wanted in terms of bringing these characters together. It's something that we've waited for for quite some time in the film. And I think between what Mark was able to give us you know, with the cars and what uh, Mike Minkler was able to do in terms of the, the fixing of these elements together um, was a really interesting way to put a gear change in the film that was, uh, I think, much appreciated by a lot of the audience. Mark, would you elaborate on your work on that scene? I will. And there's a thing that I think needs to be, you know, pointed out is that even though we're moving towards this darker piece, this dark end, and the malevolence is sort of becoming, you know, more and more apparent, he never never steps away from the opportunity for humor. <laughs> Brad's, you know, seeing traces when his trip is coming on, you know, and, and the relationship between Brad and the dog is, all of this is sort of... It's paying off. It's paying off. They're, they're set up beforehand, and they pay off in this moment, and you're getting... Yet we're going to this intense, intense bit of stuff, almost kabuki-like, operatic, you know, signature violence from Quentin. But we have water wings <laughs> that, that could carry us through, so we're not left with that as some, you know, arbitrary or, you know, un- it, it all is for a reason. Yeah. And so I love all of the kinds of elements that get us there, and I think a lot of the way that works is because of the sound in many ways you know the sound of the dog food full of going into the <laughs> into the bowl and you know the the door slams and you know just so many subtle pieces are are really expressive of we're going to be in this moment but i'm going to take care of you <laughs> it's a dance between reality and fantasy and story wins providing an emotional moment for the audience to really sort of again understand what the craziness of 1969 must have been really puts a nice sort of finish on this film that Quentin was looking for. That's the reason the film was made. And I think with Mark and uh, Mike and Chris Minkler um, and my team, of course, um, we really put something together that I think pays homage to the period and to the filmmaking style of both Quentin and uh, 1969. Los Angeles weather. Low overcast tonight, low around 58, mostly sunny tomorrow with a high near 68. No smog beaches now, 62. Valley 66, downtown 65. Orings County, 66. So we also meet Julia Butter's character. Would you tell us about working with her? Well, this is the second time in all the movies I've done with Quentin where I was knocked on my ass by an unexpected level of performance in a movie. The first time was in Inglorious Bastards. Day one, shot one, is Christoph Waltz, who all the American crew had no idea who this guy was, coming in and doing, you know, a 16-minute scene on take one, 
without dropping a line in four languages and just, you know, everybody's jaw had dropped that day, you know, and to do another seven or eight takes, each with permutations asked for and effortlessly put into the moments and revealing this like, you know, wow, you know, just this wow thing. And so Julia has rung that bell for me as well. She's this amazing Natalie Wood, Margaret Sullivan kind of actress, you know, in, in this young person. And what we see in terms of her, she carries her weight with Leonardo as a to- I mean, she actually almost in some ways dominates the scene and becomes this incredible backboard for Leonardo to work against. It speaks to Quentin's capacity for casting. His casting is just phenomenal over and over and over again. He will find the right person to be that person in the movie. To me, the real discovery actor-wise in this is Julia. You don't eat lunch. I've got a scene after lunch. Yeah. Eating lunch before I do a scene makes me sluggish. I believe it's the job of an actor, and I say actor, not actress, because the word actress is nonsensical. It's the actor's job to avoid impediments to their performance. It's the actor's job to strive for 100% effectiveness. Naturally, we never succeed, but it's the pursuit that's meaningful. Who are you? You can call me Marabella. Again, she's just incredibly, you know, it's on at that moment, you know, she's, she's this person. And, and Leonardo's performance to me is one of the best things he's done. And, you know, he's many good things, obviously, but it's my third movie with him. My first was Titanic and the second was, was Django Unchained. But this is a really fully fleshed out three-dimensional character, an actor acting as an actor who is in, you know, I mean, we, we're dealing with, so many things inside the bubble of movie making through this one guy. It says so much to people that don't necessarily have a clue about what we actually do every day. Here is the underlying emotional truth about what what movie making is ultimately about. Well, so many of you have worked with Quentin Bovary. You mentioned Leonardo, Brad Pitt, and Robert Richardson. What is the mood on set, and how do you all work together? Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, here's a brief note. We'll do a take. It'll be a great take. Quentin will suddenly say, print it. We've got that, but we're going to do one more. Why? And the crew uniformly, collectively will, in response, together, shout at the top of their lungs, because we love making movies. (laughs) This is over. I know you've heard this in all the, you know, after, after the cut. And it's really at the center. There's a joy involved here. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean there's never, you know, a moment of uh, reticent anxiety about is this going to work or not. But there's this just innate joy of being at the maximum level of potential in the thing you love to do your whole life, together with a group of other people who are in the same place. It's really like a, a band, a jazz band that has come back and gone back on the road again together. I mean, they're friends on this. Uh, the gaffer and I know each other for 40 years, the still photographer, 35. Bob Richardson and I have been working together for now, it's 18 years, I guess. These kinds of connections become almost nonverbal communication on the set so that it frees up so much energy, your influency. And that's the answer to that question is how, how it's joyous. It's really joyous. Even when you're pissed off, it's great. It's just like you're at, you know, how much do you have to rise to be able to achieve at that level is the thing that really massages that, that piece in your brain about, boy, I'm really doing what I love doing, and this is a really fantastic way to spend the days of my life. Yeah. 
I think also it, it speaks to why Quentin chooses to shoot analog, why he chooses film, why he chooses music that comes from analog sources. He believes that digital has a certain coldness. It just you can't touch it, you can't bend it, you can't you can't bang on it. And so a lot of sort of the atmosphere around his films and around the productions of his films are real hands-on. It's real sort of, uh, it's a real touch. It's a real feel. It's a real human sort of uh, spirit of accomplishment. But um, it's very satisfying to work with things that you can touch than with people who you touch and collaborate directly with face-to-face, hand-to-hand. And it's a much, it, it, for him, it, it brings out the emotional element of camaraderie and of a process. You know, filmmaking is a manufacturing process and we're making one-off, very original pieces that are cobbled together from other sources. That's why when I describe it as a as post-production being sort of a chop shop, it's really we take one part from here and another part from there and we bend it, we bang it, we glue it together, we weld it, we sand it. And I think Quentin loves the idea of walking into a room where so many artists and artisans are busy uh, performing their crafts and and doing it with real passion and, and a real handmade sensibility. It's like Michelangelo or Raphael. You're in the studio of a maestro, and you're all you know at your maximum potential. It's it's a very rare thing these days. His skill set for making movies is an outcome of being a perpetual student. He studies movies more than anybody I know. And everybody on that set is really movie knowledgeable. I mean, you know, at, at a, an incredible level. But Quentin, he will pull things, and music as well, he will pull things out of his butt, I'm sorry, but uh, that will just blow your mind. Uh, on Kill Bill, we did a scene with, with Uma where she's been shot in the chapel, and she's in coma, and he comes to me three minutes before we're about to roll. Do you have, uh, I, we were playing a lot of music, and that was before the days you could pull music out of the thin air. Do you have uh, the song Bang Bang? I said, well, yeah, I've got, I've got the Sonny and Cher, and you know, Cher's disco cover in the 80s. No, no, no. Nancy Sinatra's one, you know, side B of her second album. And I'm like, really? <laughs> what the fuck, Quentin? Come on. You know? And he said, all right, never mind, I'll sing. And so we do the scene. Here's the camera, and it's in a tight profile of Uma being unconscious. And we do the scene, and Quentin sings the song to her. It's a whisper-sing kind of thing. And he sings a song to her, three verses, and we record that. We do that as a take. The next day, I get the actual track, got to me back up and you know, we were in the boonies uh, sent up from L.A., and I play it, and it's like stunningly amazing because he's in tempo, he's at pitch of this obscure song, word for word, out of his head on the fly just then right then and and so we blended that as a mix for his drive home the next day so he could have his his duet with nancy sinatra in the car but he's like that about movies he's like that about music and you know you just you feel like you're in this time warp with quentin because of this amazing curiosity that he is constantly consuming more and more about how this has been done how can i use what has been done without copying but as homage and reference I've never seen it anywhere else. It's amazing. Would you like to each give a shout out to your teams? Yes. I've been blessed with two very, very long-standing relationships in my team. The first and longest is Petrushka Mirazwa. She and I have done probably over 75 or 80 projects together. She's also the mother of our children. So we've been together in January. It'll be 40 years. 
Oh, working together, 38. Thank you. Working together, 38 of them, except for the two decades she set apart to be home when I was apart, you know, with our kids. She's come back over the last several movies to work with us, and it was an enormous blessing on this because she's she's cross trained in it with a uh, degree in fashion, but she's magnificent with wardrobe. And and then Tom Hardig, who has been with me for over 20 years as the other key boom operator, and has done many films with Quentin from I think from. He started with me on Kill Bill with Quentin and everything since. And he's an integral part of that family, too. He's at the front end and part of our... And, and then one shout-out who's not directly in our team but is, is a lead player. He's first chair violin is Bob Richardson and his team. Bob is a phenomenal artist who is always about the project, never about territory, never about his turf. It's about what is the movie's best... And, you know, He's always keeping the movie's best interest in, at heart. Um, and that collaboration has has been one of the most fulfilling for me in terms of making movies that, that I've had the good pleasure to have. Why the? The methodology in terms of uh, sound editing really is based on maybe first and foremost the fact that uh, myself and uh, I work from home and most of my team work from home, which really produces a very, very um, interesting result, which is that my most productive times are in the morning. And so I wander out across the garden to an Atmos Theater editorial bay that my good friends at Dolby and DTS built for me. But from that point, we then interface with the cutting room. So Harry Cohen, who's my main sound effects designer, he works from home. Sylvain uh, Lussier works from home. But uh, the home base that I have is populated by uh, Leo Marcel, who Leo worked in the cutting room directly with Fred Raskin and his team. Leo was able to take elements from the two sound effects designers and from Zach uh, Goheen and bring them to the Avid track, the place where Quentin and, and Fred are sitting and, and sort of assembling the film, you know, where they can see these fast prototyped, fast uh, treatments to the soundtrack come to life in front of them in the cutting room. The bulk of my team, including my wife, uh, Lisa, and our assistant, Paula, they all have a sense that to be as productive as possible, we have to create an environment where we're comfortable, uh, where we can sort of work somewhat to our own rhythms and and ours. And one of the most beautiful things about the technology today and post-production sound in particular is that Post-production sound lives kind of on the edge of science and and subjectivity. And the best way to accomplish that is with tools that you're comfortable with in an environment where it's conducive to that kind of work. And so um, the fact that we all sort of work collectively, but from our own studios at home, was really a wonderful thing and something that I'm very grateful to uh, Chad and McIntosh for accepting and Quentin and Fred for embracing. And I think that's how you produce the kind of results that we've been talking about here. Mark knows the vibe on the set turns into the film on the screen. And I'm very much a believer that in terms of sound, the kind of work that we have to do, it's very solitary, but it's very uh, much supported by an environment where people are are comfortable and, and are working without fear. 
working from home is, is really a wonderful thing that the new technologies in this industry are really affording us. Yeah, it's, it's the hammers and nails have become much more reflective of the users than the users having to adapt intently to the limitations of the hammers and nails. It still comes down to storytelling, though. Absolutely. What we're doing is telling stories, and we're, our contribution is telling stories with our instrument, which is sound. So as long as we keep doing what is one of the oldest things humans have ever done, which is, is telling stories, uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll stay completely inside the realm of the reward that we get for doing it. Well, I so appreciate the both of you joining us. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. Yeah, Kenya. Robert W. Morgan, 93 K-H-K.